At some point or another, each and every one of you has asked the question, why? Kids, how many of you regularly go to your parents and ask them, why? If you're a parent or if you've worked with children at other times, you know children like to ask questions. Why does it rain? Well, the droplets in the clouds accumulate together and they get too heavy and eventually they fall down from the sky and it rains. To which their response is, why? Well, there's this thing called gravity. (laughs) And once things get a certain weight, gravity pulls them to the ground, pulls those rain droplets to the ground. Why? Why does that happen? Why does it happen? And eventually, it will get to the point where mom or dad will have to say, I don't know, go ask your father. Go ask your mother. Or we'll get to the point, and probably you've gotten to the point where you said, because God made it that way. (laughs) We adults ask questions too. Quite often, sometimes it can be something very simple. The other day I was cleaning fish and I cut my thumb. And I know that God ordains all things that come to pass. I know that he could have prevented me from cutting my thumb. Why did that have to happen? Why? And, it, and we also ask questions of much deeper and more dreadful things. When someone suffers terrible, from terrible sicknesses, or is abused. When someone dies, a loved one dies. One of our initial responses is to ask why. To wrestle with why. And in the same way, there comes a point where we have no more answers. We come to the end of our logical explanations and we, we have no more answers and we just fall silent. As we look In the book of Job, his friends and Job seek to come up with some answers. And they ask these questions, why is this happening? Why has this happened to me, Job would ask. His friends are the the main ones seeking answers and seeking to give answers to Job. They think that they have the answers. But what we find is that their answers, their wisdom is inadequate to address the questions that they are facing. And we find that as we read these chapters, their wisdom is insufficient. That life is more complex than simply answering questions simply by logical answers to why. We cannot come up with the ultimate answers of why suffering takes place in this world. Now we've looked at chapters 1 and 2 in which we get the setting of what's going on. We have insight that the characters in the story, that the people in the story don't have. We get explanations of why things are happening. We know, for instance, that Job is innocent in regards to his suffering. He's described that way by the author, that Job was righteous, that he was blameless, He's described the same way by God to Satan, the accuser. 
We get the setting of what's going on. And today we're going to look at chapters 3 through 37. In your bulletin it says 3 through 41. I back that down to chapters 3 through 37. And really I'll probably only make it as far as chapter 31. <laughs> A little adjustments. We've got to be flexible with one another. So we're going to be looking at chapters 3 through 31. And you might ask, why in the world would you choose to preach this many chapters all at once? Why can't you just take it kind of chunk by chunk, section by section, paragraph by paragraph? Well, we, perhaps we could do it that way. There might be some benefit to, to chopping it up differently. But the question may very well be asked as easily, why don't you preach the whole book of Job in one sermon? Because if we divide it up too neatly, we will miss the forest for the trees. We won't actually understand what God has to teach us from this book if we splice it too neatly and in too short sections. So I hope that framing it this way helps us to understand some of these great ideas and that the Spirit might work as we proclaim His Word through these great sections of Scripture. There is benefit to preaching short passages of Scripture as well as larger chunks of scripture and so this is a change of pace for us isn't it from from the book of john and it's good to have that change of pace from time to time we looked at the frame chapters one and two this narrative portion and it's important for us to understand that chapters three through almost the end of the book through chapter 41 are set out in poetry instead of narrative you can see that just for yourself as you flip through flip through the book of job and you notice how it's sectioned differently. It's probably lined differently in most of your Bibles than in chapters 1 and 2 and also chapter 42. We should make note of this, and we will a little bit further in this sermon. We're going to take this, this passage in a few different sections. First, we'll look at Job's opening monologue in chapter 3. Then we will look at Job's friends as they apply wisdom, you could say as they misapply wisdom, in chapters 4 through 26. And then we will see Job's closing arguments, we might say. Job's final plea in chapters 27 to 31. And what we will see throughout this passage, and as a result of looking at this passage, ultimately is the weakness and limitations of human wisdom and the supremacy of God in all things. That we will not, we do not have the ultimate answers to this question. But the scripture does address us here and it teaches us to respond in a certain way. Look first at Job's opening monologue. Satan's wager has failed, right? You remember the story? Satan comes before God in this kind of courtroom setting, this assembly setting. And Satan says to God, of course he fears you. You've given him everything that he could ever want or desire. He has it good. Of course he is going to fear you and follow you. And God gives Satan permission to take it all away. To take away his possessions, to take away his family, and to take away even his health so that perhaps he might 
curse God to his face. Job passes the test. And Satan is thwarted. End of story, right? Not quite. Life is more complicated than that. And the book of Job is more complicated than that. This is not the story book ending in chapter 2. For the next 30 chapters, we will see Job in the lowest points of despair. And then also going back and forth between lows and highs, proclaiming the excellencies of God's wisdom. Wisdom that is only found in God. To the lows of demanding God to show Himself, explain Himself, bring His accusations to Him, to His face. And we're led to ask a lot of questions by Job's words and responses. Here in Job chapter 3, we see him lamenting his very birth. Why was I even born? He's asking these why questions. Why did I ever come to see the light of day if this is what's going to happen to me? We're led to ask questions. Is Job responding in the right way? Is he responding as we would expect a righteous and blameless man to respond? Has he gone too far? Does he go too far in accusing God? Does he go too far in demanding God to show up before him to explain himself? To talk to God like that? We've seen it sometimes in the Psalms as well. We're led to ask a lot of questions, and to these questions there are no easy answers. If, if anything, perhaps we should say, as we look at Job's response and we wrestle with these questions as he is wrestling with why it leads us to a great humility. It leads us to a great humility in acknowledging we just don't know. Even as you approach the book of Job, there's so many questions. You're, you're wondering what's going on sometimes. Can I understand this book? What is there for me? It's, it's difficult. It promotes a great humility. And that stands in stark contrast to our culture, to, to our own innate personalities, to our own selfish longings. We do not want to admit that we don't know. We don't want to be humbled. And yet this book is a humbling book. Consider the pride of our own culture. Consider the areas of pride in our own culture, of scientific inquiry. We know everything. We know the answers to everything, some scientists might say. And yet, if you track it down the line and you keep asking questions like a child, eventually we'll come to the point where even the scientists say, I, I don't know. I don't know how something came from nothing. I don't know how life sprang from non-life. I don't know. And yet, there is such a pridefulness in man that we want to explain. We want to give answers. Look at the, the democratic debates. Look at the debates that will take place after that. Look at our political machinery at work. It is full of pride. We know the answers. I know the answers of how to fix health care. I know the answers of how to fix this or that. How humbling. Well, what would it look like if one of them said, I don't know ultimately how to answer this. And yet in their pride, they stand on a stage in front of everyone and proclaim that they know the answers. 
we do this too with our theology, do we not? We don't like there to be unanswered questions. I, for one, don't like there to be unanswered questions. I pride myself on my systematic theology. I want to know all the answers. I want to have my I's dotted, my T's crossed, everything to work together perfectly, nicely, and neatly. And we would do well as we approach the book of Job and we see his questions and we have all these unanswered questions to humbly bow our knees before God and say, I don't know. In your relationship with your husbands or wives, in your relationships with co-workers, in your relationships with family members, you are you are prone to do the same sort of prideful thing as the politicians and the scientists and the theologians. And yet, as we approach this, we should be humbled before God. Say, we don't know. We don't know the answer to all of these things. And this is pride which keeps Job's Job's friends from humbly acknowledging they don't know the answers to the questions. It's pride which leads Job's friends to wax eloquent about all the reasons he's suffering and what he should do about it. And this is what we see next. Job's friends and their application of wisdom in chapters 4 through 26. Now here in particular, we need to remember that we are reading poetry And so we need to keep our eye on a a couple different things. More than a couple, but at least a couple of things. We should make note of the content, but we should also, in particular, make note of the structure. Because the structure is going to help us understand the content. It's going to give us the context for the content. content. It's going to give us, it's going to show us what the author wants to highlight. What he wants the reader to see kind of stand out in bold print. Consider the content, first of all, just as we walk through the meaning of the words and the dialogue back and forth. Job is wrestling with God and the questions about why. Why is all of this happening? And Job's friends are wrestling with Job. They have the answers. It's like they're trying to wrestle an admission out of Job. As you are standing in your living room and your little child has written with crayons all over the walls. And you say, why did you do that? What are you doing? And he says, I didn't do that. (laughs) Crayon in hand, I didn't do that. Maybe Roscoe did that, the dog. And you say, "Eh, Roscoe doesn't have opposable thumbs. So I doubt he took his paw, the crayon with his paw, and colored all over the walls. And you're fishing for an admission. You want them to to be able to humbly say, yes, I did it. To apologize, confess, and then then you can move on. But you feel like until a confession is made, you can't go to the next step. And Job's friends are fishing for an admission of guilt, a confession. Just confess. It's clear to them that he has done something wrong. It's absolutely clear. They are espousing what we might call a divine retributive justice. Meaning, you get what you deserve. 
They maintain that those who are righteous do not suffer like they see Job suffering. The severity of his suffering, in fact, shows the seriousness of his own sin. So all that's needed, all you have to do, Job, is simply confess, repent, and it will completely change course. It will be taken away from you, your suffering. The mindset is this. Everyone gets what they deserve. To see some samples of this sort of logic, look at chapter 4, verse 8. This is Eliphaz. He says there, or chapter 7 and 8, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You're just, you're getting what you have sowed. You're reaping what you have planted. Or look at chapter 8, verse 20 and following. It says, Bildad, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. Or consider also chapter 11, verse 6, second part of verse 6. This is Zophar, and look at what he applies to Job. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Not only are we sure that you have sinned and that's why you're suffering, you deserve worse than you've actually received. And you should repent and admit that you're wrong. Is it possible that we fall into this trap of thinking this way? That basically everybody gets exactly what they deserve. Theologically speaking, if we, if we are well read, we, we would readily say, no, that's not the case. The wicked have good things happen to them and the righteous have bad things happen to them. And then we would say with Zophar, yeah, we all get less than we deserve. We all deserve much worth, which is true. But I, I wonder if sometimes in the moment of suffering, in the moment of our own suffering, or in the moment of seeing someone else suffer, we begin to think these same sorts of things. There is... A, a joking statement. If something good happens to, to one of you, someone might say, you must be living right. You get, a, you get a good parking space at the mall or you avoid some a, a collision on the highway, well, he must be real, living right, which we say it in a half-joking way perhaps. And yet, it comes from somewhere, does it not? I think sometimes there's this a, a subconscious mindset within us, even those of us who know better, we begin thinking, I'm suffering because of something that I've done. He's suffering because of something he has done. He has it good because he is living right. Well, we see Job respond to each and every accusation that they give. You have sinned. No, I'm innocent. We actually know he is innocent. Now again, we would, we would say everybody has sinned. He was not perfect. And yet, the, the author is highlighting his righteousness. He's already highlighted his righteousness because he wants us to see he's not suffering as a result of some sin that he's committed. 
He responds to each accusation. The Lord has done this. He maintains his faith. He despairs. He proclaims his faith in the Lord. He despairs again. He proclaims the excellence of wisdom. He's on a roller coaster ride until chapter 27 when Job's friends fail to respond. We notice this in the structure. Look with me. Start in verse chapters 4 and 5. There we see, uh, in, we, we see Job's friends speaking to Job. Then he responds. Then another friend speaks to Job. Then Job responds. Then another friend responds to Job. And Job responds. And they repeat it all over again. They do it three times. So in chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz speaks. Chapter 6 and 7, Job responds. Chapter 8, Bildad speaks. Chapters 9 and 10, Job responds. In chapter 11, Zophar responds. In chapters 12 through 14, Job responds. One cycle. And we see that again in chapter 15, Eliphaz. Job 16 and 17, Job responds. Chapter 18, Bildad responds. Chapter 19, Job. Chapter 20, Zophar. Chapter 21, Job. Second cycle. Let's do it all again. Let's put it on repeat. Eliphaz in chapter 22, Job chapters 23 and 24, Bildad in chapter 25, Job in chapter 26, and then what? What's supposed to happen next? Zophar, it's your turn. Where are you, Zophar? He doesn't respond. The cycle of speech and response happens over and over again until it is interrupted at the end of chapter 26, and there is no response from Zophar they are silent. And this, is, this dra- dramatically portrays the truth of what's explained in chapter 30 through 32. They had no answer for Job's response. Their wisdom fails. They have, they have nothing ultimately of worth that they can speak to Job about his suffering. There are some important applications and implications to this. One is they were wrong. It's not as simple as you get what you deserve. They were, their theology was wrong. Job is innocent. The friend's wisdom has been showed, shown to be inadequate to answer the questions raised by Job's suffering. Second and related The book of Job, this in particular, but the book of Job provides a nuance and I would say sets limits for human wisdom, even biblical wisdom. If if you were to read the book of Proverbs simplistically, just reading through it and you, you say this is wisdom, you would get the impression that people get what they deserve, that you if you do good, you're going to get good things. If you do bad, you're going, bad things are going to happen to you. Now, that is a simplistic reading of it. And yet, the book of Job gives some qualifications to that. Yes, there are consequences to your actions. If you run out into the highway without looking enough times, you're going to get hit. If you keep texting while you drive, eventually something bad's going to happen, right? This is wisdom. It doesn't mean it's always going to be the case, but generally speaking, this is, this is what we read in Proverbs. And yet the book of Job and this, these passages provide a nuance and set limits to this. Not always does it happen, 
according to the way you think it's going to happen because life is more complicated than that. And then, oh, oh, also, that life is mysterious. And many of the answers are simply out of our reach as if we are, we are reaching higher and higher to try to find the answers and we can never, never get to them. But third, and as, as I applied in our first point, this again promotes great humility. Usually I don't give the same application to two points in a sermon. But this is, this is huge. This leads us to humility before God. And it gives us a, a reticence, a slowness to speak about things of which we do not know. We should be slow to speak about things we do not know. And yet, what do we do in our suffering so often? We, we mount words upon words upon words upon words, justifying ourselves, giving reasons for our suffering, trying to find answers for our suffering, when simply there are limits to our wisdom and knowledge. When we come to chapters 27 through 31, Job's closing appeal or monologue. It should have been Zophar's turn to speak after chapter 26, but Job continues speaking. Look at those chapters in your Bible. Job chapter 26. Then Job answered. That's the that's the common refrain whenever he responds. But then in chapter 27, and Job again took up his discourse. Oh, he's going to keep on. In chapter 28, 29, and Job again took up his discourse and said, the structure of this poetry gets all jumbled up and messed up. What is happening here? Especially in chapters 27 and 28. Notice chapter 27. What is he talking about there? Ultimately, he's saying the wicked will perish. He, he laments some more at the beginning of chapter 27, and then he says, let my enemy be as the wicked. And then he sounds a lot like his friends who were speaking earlier. Let bad things happen to him because bad things are going to happen to the wicked. God's going to destroy uh, the wicked. All these things will come upon the wicked. And then look at chapter 29. He is talking about the, the negative relationship between the wicked in chapter 27 and God. And then in 29, he, he recalls his prior relationship to God. In contrast to God's relationship to the wicked, he shows his relationship to God, how it used to be. In the good days, when things were going well, he had joy. He, he showed kindness and generosity to others. He his life was exemplified by righteousness and goodness. If only it could be as it used to be for now. And then chapter 30. But now those who respected me, they laugh at me. Those who once held me in high regard, now they spit on me as they pass by. And then chapter 32, 31 is Job's final appeal and curses upon himself if it is shown that he has sinned in some way. Do you see that? Walk through chapter 31 sometime and you see, if, if this has taken place, if I have done this, then let this fall upon me. Terrible curses that he's speaking because he is so assured of his own righteousness, of his innocence before God. 
And perhaps the key in chapter 31 is his appeal to God, chapter 31, verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps like a prince. I would approach him. It's almost as if he has signed a subpoena for the Almighty to appear before him, to give an account for what he has suffered in light of his innocence. But chapter 28 doesn't seem to fit. We could take chapter 28 out and 27, 29, 30, and 31 would flow seamlessly through. In fact, commentators have, some commentators have said, somebody put, just simply put this here later and messed everything up. It doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? It's like a puzzle piece that they just crammed in there to, to make it fit for some reason. But maybe it does fit. Maybe it fits perfectly. Maybe the, the author, the composer, intentionally put it there so that we would re- recognize it seems completely out of place in this passage. Maybe he wants to highlight for us the limits of human wisdom and the supremacy of God's wisdom. Look at chapter 28 very quickly. Verses 1 through 11. We see the search for silver and gold and fine metals. Man will go at any length to find these precious treasures. Verses 12 through 19, where is wisdom to be found? This is, this is the question that is posed here in this chapter. And then 20 through 22, from where does wisdom come? Where can we find it? Where does it come from? And then the answers are found in verses 23 and following. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he had made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The mountains of words from Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar amount to nothing. And it is summed up here in one verse. The fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. Isn't that what the rest of the wisdom literature speaks to? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And Israel had completely failed throughout their history to do this. They did not fear the Lord. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, neither have you. We have failed in this this simple task to fear the Lord, to revere Him as we should, to acknowledge His greatness and supremacy, and we need another who will do that for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless and righteous, there is none like Him in all the world, who fears God and turns away from evil at every single turn. The innocent suffering servant who humbled himself to obedience even to the point of death on the cross. He is the wisdom 
and power of God. Now the emphasis here, though, is on human wisdom not being enough. Coming in humility before God and trusting Him. Simply trusting Him. Patiently, humbly, in the suffering. We must let God attend to the things of God while we attend to what is required of us by the grace of God. The wisdom from above to fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Listen to Matthew Henry explain this. There is a twofold wisdom. One hid in God which is secret and belongs not to us. The other made known by him and revealed to man. One day's events and one man's affairs have such reference to and so hang upon one another that he only to whom all is open and who sees the whole at one view can rightly judge of every part. But the knowledge of God's revealed will is within our reach and will do us good. Let man look upon this as his wisdom, to fear the Lord and to depart from evil. Let him learn that, and he has learned enough. Where is this wisdom to be found? The treasures of it are hid in Christ, revealed by the word, received by faith through the Holy Ghost. It will not feed pride or vanity or amuse our vain curiosity. It teaches and encourages sinners to fear the Lord and to depart from evil in the exercise of repentance and faith without desiring to solve all the difficulties about the events of this life. What trials are you facing, brothers and sisters? What difficulties are on your horizon? It is enough to not have to solve all the difficulties and yet at the same time humbly and patiently bowing our knees before the Father who cares for us, who has demonstrated his care for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufferings for us to bow our knees before him and to simply and patiently trust him for his grace. Let's pray together.